Revelation chapter 19 in your Bibles, and we're going to sort of pick up where we left off, and I hope you'll use your Bibles and really do your best tonight to hear what the Spirit says to our church, this local church, Revelation 19. Verse 11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God, and hath he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Wow. What a description. You know, Prisca's son is an artist, a good artist, just as Jim Johnston is a very good artist. And, and just like Jim, he's drawn some of these pictures. And he drew a painting of this one. I don't know if we have it, guys. Yeah. So he's tried. You can't see it from where you're at, but it's got almost all the little details of this. And it's beautiful and it's amazing. But I have to tell you that it is impossible to draw. That's why he says as. It is impossible to really put on canvas or parchment or paper, as good as that is, exactly what John saw and what's going to happen. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'll help us to open our hearts to your word tonight. We need to hear from you. We've been studying this amazing book now for many weeks, even months, and I pray, Father, that as we begin to come to the end, you will show us what all of these things mean for us in this time, this day in which we're living. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to review very quickly for a moment what we concluded with last week in Revelation 19, and I want you to look at verse 11 again. We just read a moment ago. He says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Now understand, beloved, this is called the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is the revelation of Christ when he returns, not in the air. The Bible says he will come in the air and will go up and so forth. Not in the air at the rapture, but seven years after that when it comes down all the way to the earth and his feet are planted on the Mount of Olives. And the Bible says that when he comes, the last line of this verse, look at it, he comes to judge and make war. Now for many, many people in this world, it's strange to hear that the Son of God is a man of war. Now, we know that the Bible says that there are wars. Jesus said there will be rumors of wars. In fact, go all the way back to the very beginning in the book of Genesis. You'll see that it's filled with wars and battles. And furthermore, God himself will take sides in some of these wars. From Abraham to Joshua to Judges, the wars of David, as you know. So that the best known title of the God of Israel is in the Old Testament is the Lord of Hosts. You know what the Lord of Hosts means? It literally means the Lord of the Army. He is called the Commander-in-Chief. The Lord Jesus Himself is described in the New Testament as the Captain of our salvation. 
And sure enough, as we come to the last book in the Bible, it is filled with battle cries. It is filled with battle songs. And it makes some people wonder, how is Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, how is he this man of war? And the answer, for the most part, can be summarized at least in what we just read in verse 11. Right? Look at it again. It says that sat, he that sat upon the throne was called faithful and true. And then note this, in righteousness he doth judge and make war. You see, beloved, when men make war, when nations go to war, they may claim, they always do it seems, they may claim to do it because they are right. They do it in righteousness and they claim to be, quote, faithful and true. But in fact, you know this is the case. The wars of this world are most noted for the very opposite of that. They're always, they're always beset with propaganda. The propaganda techniques of the aggressors, they distort, they dissemble the truth. There's disinformation, there's misinformation. So that whenever a nation takes up its arms against its neighbors, for example, it will always seize upon some pretext in order to convince its people, the leaders will, and the, even the rest of the world sometimes, that its cause is just. That they just, quote, had to do this, go to war. The assassination of Franz Ferdinand, for example, that triggered the July crisis and then World War I. The Gulf of Tonkin, Colin Powell's famous vial of white powder at the United Nations Security Council. These things, Putin's Nazi scam and smear on Ukraine. It's called a casus belli. It's their reason, their pretext. There's always something up when men and nations go to war. People are still arguing to this day over the righteousness or the unrighteousness of the American Civil War. There are still American professors who say that we were wrong to get involved in the Second World War. And obviously Vietnam, where my dad fought, and the Middle East, and so it goes. I'll tell you what, folks, if you want to know how confused our world is when it comes to wars and aggression and warfare, just look at who has received the Nobel Peace Prize in its history. Yasser Arafat, for example, promoted terrorism, paid for, encouraged suicide bombers to go in pizza parlors and birthday parties and Passover celebrations and murder civilian women and children. He was given the, the Nobel Peace Prize. He wasn't just given, he was awarded that Peace Prize. So that he's dead, but he's a Nobel laureate. Fritz Harber called the merchant of death, and we could go on and on, right? This world is always deceptive. It's always equivocating. Always revising history when it comes to matters of war. They don't know who's right. They don't know who's wrong. I mean, we have found out things since the beginning of, say, the Gulf of Tonkin that got us in the Vietnam War, that, where people lied, where some of our generals lied. We don't know, they don't know what's good or what's not good. It becomes propaganda machines. But you see here, beloved, here is the King of Kings. And the Bible says that He is faithful and He is true. Capitalized, showing that it's the personification of Jesus. He is faithful and He is true. And in righteousness, it says, He doth make war. But pastor, how can any war, how can any battle 
where there's death and bloodshed, how can any of that ever be righteous? Well, very simple. Whenever that battle or that warfare goes against what is unrighteous. In other words, there really is an evil and there really is good in the universe. You've probably noticed lately Hollywood cannot make a successful film. They've tried, but they cannot make a successful film without good versus evil somewhere. Now, they've tried to muddy the waters and so forth, even switch it, so that now the biggest struggle these days is their inability to see any evil. Can't say that something's evil. When Ronald Reagan said, the evil empire, he was castigated in this country tremendously. This world recognizes that to reach the minds and hearts of people, they have to at least go with the narrative that there's good versus evil. They just don't know which is which. So in unrighteousness and in untruth, the world doth make war. But when Jesus comes again, when Christ comes, and He returns in His glory, the first thing He does is gather up all the good guys, if you will, and all of the bad guys, and He puts the bad guys away. Chapter 19. Look at verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. This is the war of all wars. This is Armageddon. Now look, folks, you have been reading what the beast and his armies and the false prophet, we have been studying for months now what they will wreak upon this earth. Satan wants to destroy every living man, woman, and child to get back at God if he can. And the beast, look at this, was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him and with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast. And them that, worked, that shipped, his, uh, shipped his image, these both, look at this, were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. This is not. The bottomless pit. This is the lake of fire. And and immediately, here's this war. And, And you'll notice in verse 21, And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse. Which sword proceeded out of his mouth? And all the fowls were filled with their flesh. In other words, not much of a war in the sense that the Lord Jesus Christ simply speaks his word, as we've said last week. The same one who spoke his word and all the storm was made calm. The same one who spoke the words and said, I am. Who spoke and put the stars in place. The Bible says with the sword of his mouth. The word of God is the sword of the spirit. Immediately. Just. He puts an end to Satan and all of his armies. This is not some great battle that you get to pull out your sword. And fight. Like the last scene of the return of the king. Not like that at all. We are assured that since this is the work of God, it is in righteousness. It is in truth that he doth make war. So that when God puts this war in effect, there's no collateral damage. There's no friendly fire at all. It is perfect in righteousness. Most of you here knows what a fulcrum is, I think. The second coming of Christ is the fulcrum of all human history. This is the turning point 
This is the place, beloved, where everything that is dark and evil and sorrowful in the universe is finally and completely conquered by God Himself for good. And as the old spiritual song says, we won't learn war no more. Which is exactly why the next chapter in Revelation begins like this. Chapter 20, verse 1, And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent. Now, we just read what happens to the false prophet. We read what happened to the beast, the Antichrist. What about Satan? Here it is. He laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Now, look up for a minute. Because there's a growing old theology that's making its way back in the scene today. Six times in chapter 20. Six times. Six. You can go through and underline them with your pen. Six times in this chapter you will see the word millennium. Milli means a thousand. Anna means years. One thousand years. And there are two basic views on this one thousand years described Six times, six times in just this chapter. Amillennialists believe that there's no millennium. That is, there's no literal 1,000-year period as given here in this book, chapter. Premillennialists believe that there is a literal 1,000-year period where Christ will come and rule and reign from Jerusalem on David's throne. Now, that's what we believe. That's what I believe. Because that's clearly what it says. And again, not just here. If you go throughout the Old Testament, the prophets foresaw a time when the Messiah would rule on the throne of David. Literal time. It was a time unlike any other known to man. And much of that is discussed, described, promised, prophesied in detail in the books of Isaiah, Zechariah, Micah, the minor prophets. They get this intricate detail about what it's going to be like on this earth when Jesus rules and reigns. And you know, in the New Testament, our Lord himself quotes those minor prophets. The apostles quote Isaiah and others as literally applying those promises and prophecies. And honestly, for me, for my sake at least, the promises and the prophecies about this 1,000-year period of time, this millennium on this earth, are far more intriguing and amazing than the prophecies that we've been studying about during the seven-year world order of the beast. Much better for our hearts. And that brings us then to this. Because the truth of the matter is, while mankind has always imagined and longed for this this 1,000-year utopia, or they would call it 500, this Valhalla, Shangri-La, The world has always, men have always written stories or imagined and concocted religions about some world peace and justice, a golden age that is to come. And we have people in our government that are called progressives that are working towards man bringing about this golden age through humanism. The truth is such a place is utterly impossible. It is absolutely, that's why amillennialism was very popular the turn of the century. 
Because it just seemed like, it appeared like Christianity was, was covering the globe and uh, like a mighty army moves the church, marches the church of God. And there was a lot of, of hope. And then that was crushed with World War I. And then the Second World War. And wars and wars and more debauchery and evil men and seducers are waxing worse and worse. Realism set in. This, this golden age, Shangri-La, as the world would dream about, it'll never happen. Two things have to happen for there to be a golden age on this earth. Number one, first of all, Jesus has to be the king. That has to happen. Do you think that if Jesus came back right now that people in Congress would welcome him? They'd say crucify him. Honestly, they would say the same because they, they don't believe in anything that this book teaches, and he is the word. They would definitely say, we will not have this man rule over us, just like they said the first time he came. Two things have to happen. Number one, Jesus would have to be the king, and number two, Satan would have to be gone. And folks, it's literally and only in the Bible that you find this happens. It is only in the Bible that you will find when and how God is going to bring about this glory. The past few weeks, we've all read that Jesus is going to return someday just before, just prior to the annihilation of Israel. And just at the end of the tribulation period, the earth is, has been, we've studied, in chaos. The environment is completely devastated. Billions of people will have already died. And now the Son of God will appear to make everything right. And the very first order of business is what we read in verse 20. The beast is taken and the false prophet and just thrown into the lake of fire. That's the first thing Jesus does when he comes back. The second thing Jesus does when he comes back is verse 21. The remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse. Just with his word. So, to begin with, as we study this, this and think about this coming kingdom, that again, we believe the Bible teaches to be literal. You realize that all of those who took the mark of the beast, meaning all of the lost people who are still alive, remember what Jesus said about this period? He said, except those days should be shortened, no flesh should be saved. Nobody will be alive if it went past seven years. People are just dying. But some people will be alive. Some people who have gnawed their tongues in pain. And cursed God. They will be alive. And the Bible says those lost people are destroyed at Christ's coming as well. Including the beast, the false prophet, who apparently aren't even given the chance to die. They're, the Bible says alive they're thrown to the lake of fire. That's not all. Verse 2, chapter 20. He laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. We're going to look at that little season in the future. But for now, you see that Satan's out of the way. He's locked up. He's in the bottomless pit. And now the way is cleared, if you will, for a new government to be established on this earth. Look at verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, 
and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, let's stop here for a minute. According to what we just read, several things happen in a very short period of time when Christ returns. The Lord Jesus, the Bible says, come back, comes back to the Mount of Olives. That's in the Gospels. He's coming back then with the saints, not for the saints. That's when He comes just to the air. The beast and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. Satan is banished and bound to the bottomless pit. And now, resurrected tribulation saints. It says these are the ones who were beheaded because they wouldn't take them because they believed in Christ. They were not ashamed of the word. With them, glorified Christians are given responsibilities and appointments as kings and rulers in this new world. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.12, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. That's talking about a kingdom. That's talking about a position. Colossians, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 2 says, Do you not know that saints shall judge the world? Shall. Not now. But we will one day. Listen to Matthew 19. These are the words of our Lord. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? Good old Peter. He's always opening the mouth. But Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He says, And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of his glory. He says, Peter, there's going to be a time when there's a regeneration. A new day. And the Son of Man will sit on the throne. It says, when he shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon, sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and so on. In the very first chapter of Revelation, in our very first study, you may remember it says, that God will make us kings and priests. That was a promise at the very beginning of this book. And indeed, according to the book of Zechariah, when the people of Israel, the ones who are still alive at the end, it says, when they look upon him whom they have pierced, that remnant, whatever is remaining, will believe and repent. Folks, these aren't fantasies. God did not give the prophets a bunch of allegories and symbols through all of those centuries that somehow we're fulfilling now in this church age. In addition to that, Jesus taught in Matthew 25 that the Gentiles who are still alive at the end of the tribulation will also be judged. At that time, some of them will be sheep, Jesus said, and some of them will be goats, a passage that is always taken out of place. The goats are cast into everlasting fire. Matthew 25, 46, and the sheep get to enter into the millennial kingdom. You know, that brings up an interesting scenario, right? Think about the end times. Think about what's happened up to this point. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who will have survived the tribulation period. They weren't killed. They didn't die. They're alive. Some of those will go into the millennial kingdom in their own fleshly bodies 
In other words, for a thousand years, the kingdom of Christ will include both glorified bodies, the resurrected people, and those who survive the tribulation from this world in their earthly bodies. Now, granted, at that moment, everybody is saved. These are all sheep, no goats. Everybody believes in Jesus, but a thousand years is a long time. And during that time, those who entered into the kingdom in their mortal bodies will have children. And obviously, those children will be born with a sin nature. And as they mature, they'll have to make a choice, just like everybody else in in history past, about trusting Christ. I'll remind you that as wonderful as the millennial age will be, the Bible says, we just read it, that Jesus will still have to rule with a rod of iron. Why would he have to rule glorified people with a rod of iron? Well, children of children of children of children that are sinners will be punished. Justice will be perfect and swift. This is how, you know, people are so confused. Like Jesus, for example, he said, in that day, in the kingdom, he used the words in the kingdom. If you say to someone, thou fool, you are in danger of hellfire. What was he saying? That justice is so swift that just speaking something like that would reveal who you are and you would be in danger of hellfire. But pastor, how can resurrected bodies and regular mortal bodies, carnal bodies, coexist the exact same way it happened when Jesus was resurrected and went around and ate for 40 days, ate with people and walked with them and talked with them? Of course people will live in the millennium with bodies, both those in the mortal and in the glorified. It says in the Bible that righteousness shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And this brings up another interesting point. Because at the beginning of this thousand-year millennium, what will be more of? Glorified and resurrected saints or living fleshly saints, the ones who got saved? I mean, obviously, since all of history's believers, plus the Old Testament saints, plus tribulation saints, since all of them biblically are here now, and only those who live through the tribulation will be present in human bodies, obviously the glorified saints will far outnumber these living ones. On the other hand, I hope I'm not confusing you, just go back and listen to the tape. After a thousand years, those glorified saints who do not marry and have no children will watch while the living saints will have many children and many grandchildren and many great-grandchildren. Do you remember Zechariah's prophecy? Now tell me when this prophecy will ever be fulfilled. Zechariah prophesied prolonged lifespans. He said a child will die at 100 years of age. In fact, in Zechariah, he says that when someone dies at 200 years of age, people will say, oh, she was so young. They were so young. When, Zechariah? You take that into consideration, it makes you realize that a thousand years of high birth rate and low death rate, the entire world is covered with living saints, living saints, if you will. Generations of people whose parents lived through the tribulation or grandparents or great-grandparents. See, Pastor, so what? Why is this significant? Why does it matter if you're amillennial or premillennial? I can tell you why. You may remember we noted earlier that God always has a purpose. He does. He has a divine plan or reason for everything that he does. Every act in the program of God has a divine, glorious purpose behind it. 
Well, we know this. We know that one of the purposes of the millennium is to show man what could have been. We know that, including Israel. The millennium will prove, and for all of eternity, that even this world would have been glorious and peaceful and blessed if Christ had not been rejected as king. Wow. People are going to see what we all know, that man, if, if, if our country would just change its ways, if Israel had just said yes, and that's going to prove it for a thousand years, but at the very same time, it will also prove something else for all of eternity, which means it's proof to us now because we believe the Bible. We don't need to wait. What is it, Pastor? Verse 7, chapter 20. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Remember, he's bound down there in the bottomless pit. And shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. Wait a minute, what? The number of whom is as the sand of the sea? What? He was just defeated at the Battle of Armageddon a thousand years before. He's coming back. What battle? Well, it's not going to be a battle, as you'll see in a minute. But he's loosed upon this world after a thousand years of people having children and children and grandchildren. Verse 9, and they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. What's the beloved city? It's Jerusalem. After a thousand years, it's still Jerusalem. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. I told you, it wasn't going to be much of a battle. Now, folks, think about it. The tribulation period proves beyond all doubt that no matter what the judgment, no matter what the punishment or the sentence, even with Satan bound, man will still curse God and refuse to bow. In the tribulation, it says, as we noted, they will gnaw their tongues for pain at the same time they continue to curse God. But the millennium will prove that no matter how blessed and how perfect and how wonderful the environment, no matter how good God is, and no matter how visible He is, well, I'd believe in God if He just shows, stands up here right now in front of me. Well, Jesus Himself will be ruling from Jerusalem. No matter what the surroundings are like, man, as many as the sands of the sea will still rebel and not follow the Lord. They'll still follow Satan just as he's released. Not everybody, but as many as the sands of the sea. And let me just say two things ought to occur to you and I in light of this. More than two, for example, not the two I was going to mention. When you hear scoffers, when you hear them say, well, if I would believe, no. Number one, there but by the grace of God go you and I. I mean, do you realize it's a miracle that God saves any of us? A miracle that we're saved tonight? The second thing we ought to realize is that God is just and man is not. So enough of this, what about the innocent people in this country or that country? Enough of wondering about God's justice. In the first book of the Bible... Right off the bat, God puts in His word, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Question mark. The answer, 
is yes. But I don't, he's going to do right. But I don't understand, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The answer is yes. God is going to take a thousand years to prove that he is just. And just as you're going to see in the next couple of weeks, he's also going to take a thousand years to prove that he is good. I'll say this. The millennium, if you've ever studied it, and all the prophecies in the Old Testament that, that specifically speak to it, and the ones that Jesus specifically speaks to it, and then here, it is going to be full of joy. It's real. Full of blessing. As hard as it is to get people saved and sanctified now, that's how easy it's going to be in the kingdom. Everything's going to be set right. So that justice and equity and peace and mercy and the sheer beauty of the earth, plus the fact that on this earth, this earth, this earth, before the new heaven and before the new earth, because this earth we're reading about here is also going to burn. On this earth we will live and serve God with Moses and Abraham and John and Paul and departed loved ones. Satan will not be around. Christians will be in charge of newspapers. Can you imagine? And the news. Television, if there is such a thing. Building departments. Hallelujah. Zechariah prophesied that we will celebrate certain holidays. Maybe the rapture will be one for a thousand years. Remember that? But we'll be celebrating dates on the calendar. I can say this. If I weren't a Christian tonight, I'd get saved just to be around for the millennium. I say, Pastor, I don't think you should do that. I don't think you should talk about the millennium as if it's some sort of blessing that Christians are supposed to look forward to. Well, let me remind you, Peter asked Jesus, what are we going to get? And Jesus answered his question by showing him the millennium. And beyond that, if you don't think you should talk about it as a literal thing that's going to happen, then what do you do with chapter 20 and verse 6? Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such a second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. What a promise. What a reminder that a Christian who's living for God is in a win-win situation. Look, folks, just look ahead as far as you want. Look ahead in the Bible as far as you can, and for every child of God, it's all good news. And God's people said, let's pray. Father, I pray you'll help us to Embrace the truth of your word. And Lord, help us not try to squeeze it to fit into our thinking, our times, our logic, but to take your word as you've given it to us simply and clearly and powerfully. And for reminding us that the promises about the throne of David, hundreds of them, will be fulfilled by the Son of David, the Son of God. I pray, Father, that it will motivate us here and now to trust you, to serve you, to follow you, to give our lives for you. 
and praise you for that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.